Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. That's John 11, verses 45 to 57. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did put their faith in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing? they asked. Here is this man performing many miraculous signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realise that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God, to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the Jews. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the desert, to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for the ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus, and as they stood in the temple area, they asked one another, What do you think? Isn't he coming to the feast at all? But the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone found out where Jesus was, he should report it so that they might arrest him. Father, as we've been singing, all I have is Christ, Jesus is my life, we pray that we would be so convinced of that, and not least of all as we look at your word this evening, so convinced that Jesus is better than everything else that we would be able to say honestly from our hearts, use my ransom life in any way you choose. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please do sit. Well, it is very good to see you all. And again, uh, let me add my welcome to that of Andy's earlier, especially if you're new here. Welcome to you all. Um, And uh, you uh, won't necessarily know that we've been working through John chapter 11. We come to uh, this last Uh, a part of John 11 now before we go into 12 next uh, week and on Um, and uh, the reading that um, Feleste read for us earlier page 1078 I think you'll find it really helpful if you have that open so do grab hold of your Bibles page 1078 and also in the bundle on the way in uh, you'll have found uh, an outline of the talk and again I think you'll find that useful as well Um, so that's on a white sheet and uh, do have that in front of you too I became a Christian on a Friday night in March 1983 and I was so thrilled with the gospel that when I walked into work three days later on Monday morning, I thought everyone would want to know how they too could be forgiven and have a guarantee of eternal life when they died. So I started telling my colleagues about Jesus. Well, you don't need me to tell you that I didn't get universal acceptance. Some people listened politely Others left me with no doubt that they didn't want to know. They, they weren't 
rude, actually, but they made it very clear. They didn't want to know any more. And at first, I assumed that I wasn't explaining it very well because I couldn't understand why anyone wouldn't want to hear about the great problem of death being solved. Well, in our Bible passage this week, we see that it's always been the case that people don't want to hear this great news. And in our Bible passage this evening, we discover something of why people don't want to turn to Jesus when he can give them eternal life. But last week in John chapter 11, we saw Jesus go to the grave of a dead man called Lazarus and have the stone that was across the entrance to his tomb removed. And then do you see verse 43, he called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the astonishing words of verse 44, and the dead man came out. They are the most remarkable words. The dead man came out. I reckon he shuffled out, actually, because end of verse 43, his hands and feet were still wrapped up in the grave clothes. And note, and this is crucial, that there are a bunch of people right there who saw it with their very own eyes. People who knew that Lazarus was dead, people who'd seen him buried in the tomb, those same people saw him, the dead man, walk out of the grave. And John tells us there were two responses to this incredible event. And that's our first point this evening. Two responses. And it is amazing that there were two. The first response is not surprising at all. It's exactly what you'd expect. Verse 45, many trusted Jesus. See, therefore, many of the Jews who'd come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did, raising Lazarus, put their faith in him. Well, of course, they did. They'd seen a death-defying miracle. They'd seen a dead man walk out of the grave. Here was the conclusive sign that Jesus is who he said he was back in verse 25, the resurrection and the life. And as Jesus said in verse 25, the one who believes in him, in Jesus, would themselves live eternally. Well, if if that's the thing, if Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and the life, then he proves that he is, and he says, anyone who believes in me will have eternal life, is it any wonder that many put their faith in him? It's the logical and entirely sensible response to Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, is it not? Jesus proved that he's not all talk, that he could give life beyond the grave, so who wouldn't want a slice of that? It's one of the main reasons I became a Christian. Age 20, I was very aware that one day I would die. My best friend, Lawrence Crowther, had died when we were 17. Death death came crashing into my life when I least expected it to. You know, at 17, you don't expect to meet death, do you? Death was all too real for me. And so when I looked into the evidence for Jesus Christ and discovered this, I didn't waste a minute. Grabbed it with both hands. Eternal life, I want that. And I thought with such an offer on the table, who wouldn't want to put their trust in Jesus? But it turns out that there are quite a few who don't. They don't today and they didn't back then. And that brings us to the first big surprise in this section of the Bible. It's there in the second word of our reading in verse 45. I wonder if you saw it, the the surprise. The word is many. Many of the Jews who witnessed Lazarus being raised from the dead put their faith in Jesus. It's a surprise because it's many, not all. See, as a new Christian, I didn't get it. Why wouldn't everyone trust Jesus for the guarantee of eternal life? I didn't get it then, and I don't entirely get it now. 
And if you're like me, a little dumbfounded by the fact that not everyone wants this brilliant offer, then the next verses begin to enlighten us. Because we see, you see secondly under this first heading, that some rejected Jesus. Look at verse 46. But some of them, that is some of those who were there watching Lazarus come out of the grave, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. See, while the majority were jaw-droppingly amazed at what Jesus had done, some slipped away, and don't miss this. These people were there when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. But rather than put their faith in Jesus, they ran to the authorities, to the Pharisees. And, uh, well, we've sort of come halfway through John's gospel, so we don't know all the story, but they were running to people who John has already told us had put a price on Jesus' head people who had already attempted to have him stoned. See, the Pharisees were people who wanted Jesus dead and off the planet. They were part of the religious establishment. They were what we might call today the the lay leaders of the Jewish religion. And in a society where religion was at the heart and centre of every part of life, to be a Pharisee was to be highly respected. It was an honoured position. Pharisees were revered and held in high esteem. So you get the picture. Some people went off and told the Pharisees what they'd just seen. Jesus raised a dead man, verse 47. And the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. Now the Sanhedrin was a group of either 23 or 71 rabbis, uh, teachers of God's law. It was the highest judicial body in the land. Under Roman law, they controlled all Jewish internal affairs. So an extraordinary general meeting of the Sanhedrin was called with just one item on the agenda, Jesus, and what to do with him. That was it. Look at the minutes of the meeting. It is astounding. They said, halfway through verse 7, what are we accomplishing? Here is this man performing many miraculous signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Now, now look again, isn't that remarkable? There was no doubt in their minds that Jesus was performing miracles. You see, they didn't question those who came to them with news of a dead man being raised. They didn't say, Jesus did what? No, we can't believe that. He raised a dead man, are you sure? That's not their response at all. No, no questioning here. No, no questioning at all. They, they, they don't doubt the miracles because, you see, they've already heard about Jesus' miracles. We don't have to turn to it, but back in chapter 9, Jesus gave sight to a man who had been blind from birth, a man who'd never been able to see a thing until he met Jesus. And so when Jesus enabled him to see, you won't be surprised to hear that he was so thrilled he started to tell everybody about it about the man who'd given him sight. And when the previously blind man was brought before the Pharisees, the same group, rather than rejoice with the man that he could now see, the Pharisees cast aspersions on Jesus. He's not from God, they said. He breaks God's law. He's a sinner, they said. They cross-examined the formerly blind man and even got his parents into the witness box. So the fact that Jesus could perform miracles was no new thing to the Pharisees. They didn't question it at all. Verse 47, here is this man performing very many miracles. They don't doubt the eyewitness testimony that Jesus can raise a dead man to life. 
And that really is worth noting. There's not a lack of evidence to stop people trusting in Jesus. They had evidence back then. Eyewitnesses told them that Jesus had raised a dead man from his grave, and we have evidence today. If you have a Bible in your hand, and most of you have at the moment, you are right now holding an eyewitness account. John, who who wrote this gospel, tells us that he put pen to paper precisely so that we would know what actually happened, so that we too can put our trust in Jesus. There's plenty of good, solid, reliable evidence. And so having just heard from eyewitnesses that Jesus had raised a man, a dead man from the grave, you'd have thought the religious leaders would have reassessed their view on Jesus. Indeed, precisely because they were the religious elite, you'd have expected them to search the scriptures and ask themselves, who is this? When we look at our scriptures, who is it that can raise a man, a dead man from the grave? You'd expect them to chase up the evidence, but no, they're not interested in evidence. They're interested only in preserving their position. Here's the big point tonight. The reason they don't put their faith in Jesus was because of self-interest. Look at verse 48 again. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. The religious establishment feared that Jesus' actions would would fire popular messianic expectations to fever pitch, set off an uprising, cause civil unrest, the like of which we're seeing in Hong Kong in recent days. And they worried if that happened, the Sanhedrin believed that the Roman authorities would clamp down on all religious activities and shut down the Sanhedrin, stopping all temple worship. That is the place that's mentioned at the end of verse 48. And if that happened, if they shut down temple worship, the heart of the nation would be ripped out, bringing their national identity to a close. And most crucially, that would bring an end to them, these men, the Sanhedrin, holding positions of authority and privilege. So Don Carson sums up the heart of the problem when he writes, they are prompted less by dispassionate concern for the well-being of the nation than for their own positions of power and prestige. See, power and prestige, keeping everything that's important to us, hanging on to our place in the world, maintaining our reputation. That is so often why people reject Jesus, not because of the evidence, there's plenty of evidence, but because of the concern that following Jesus will result in a loss of position and popularity and privileges. That's why many people don't put their faith in Jesus. Now, please don't mishear me. That is not the only reason that people don't put their faith in Jesus. People have lots of different reasons. But know that when some present intellectual reasons, the truth in their hearts is they just don't want to lose what they have in this life. But in the light of everything we've seen in these last weeks, do you see how foolish that is? How illogical it is not to trust Jesus? See, through this chapter, we've seen that Jesus can deal with the problem of death. Jesus can give us life beyond the grave, eternal life in a glorious new creation where we will have everything. A great future where you will want for nothing. You will not have a worry in the world. Every day you will wake up and it's going to be a brilliant day today. And when you go to sleep, you will go, it was a great day today. Yet here are people who are desperately trying to hang on to position and prestige and power and privileges, things that we will lose when we die, 
They hang on to the things that they will lose rather than take hold of the thing that will last forever. Do you see how short-sighted it is? To refuse to turn to Jesus because we're desperately holding on to what we have now when Jesus offers us everything beyond death forever. That's what's going on with the Sanhedrin here. And to make it worse, they were the religious establishment. They should have looked at the evidence before them and put two and two together. The Jewish nation were waiting for their Messiah. And so when the Messiah turned up on the scene and undeniably proved that he was their Messiah, they, they refused to see it. So there are two responses in this passage to resurrection. Many put their faith in him. Some rejected Jesus. Secondly, on the sheet, two perspectives to Jesus' death, verses 49 to 53. Here we are then in the middle of this extraordinary general meeting of the Sanhedrin with the religious elite doing all they can to protect their status and their stuff. And what we read next shows that our response to Jesus will depend on our understanding of his death. Look, here are these religious bigwigs meeting to try and work out what to do about Jesus. And then the biggest wig of all took the floor. Verse 49. One of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. Blimey, that's quite a statement, isn't it? The high priest, the leader of the lot of them, pipes up, you haven't got a clue. You don't know what you're talking about. You know nothing at all. And then he spoke some remarkable words, verse 50. You do not realise that it is better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. That one statement from Caiaphas gives us two ways of understanding the death of Jesus. Two perspectives, if you will. First, a human perspective, as we'll see in verse 53. You see, as Caiaphas said those words, what Caiaphas thought he was saying and what the Sanhedrin thought and heard him saying was simply this. Let's get rid of Jesus. It's better that he die than we end up with a riot on our hands. You can call it political expediency. You can call it cynical self-interest. You can call it whatever you like. But know that this wasn't the first time, and it certainly wasn't the last, that people in positions of power have plotted to get rid of someone who, in their mind, was causing them trouble. And that is one way of understanding the death of Jesus, that he threatened the status quo, and so he was bumped off so that everyone could calm down, so that all the hysteria about him would be quashed. That's one way of understanding it. Jesus died because of a human plot to do away with him. That's, that's it. Interesting history. And that's basically what happened. Better than one man die than for the whole nation to go through the political upheaval of the Romans, shutting down the entire nation and religious system. And so, verse 53, from that day on they plotted to take his life. That's one way of understanding it. But while Caiaphas and the rest of the Sanhedrin set out to hire a hitman, John, the writer of this gospel, tells us that Caiaphas's statement was much more than a dastardly act to kill an innocent man. Without realising it, Caiaphas spoke prophetically. So John writes, verse 51, he did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God, to bring them together and make them one. And so you see, we go from a human perspective, what Caiaphas and and the Sanhedrin thought was just, um, let's kill him, to being given a divine perspective on Jesus' death in verses 51 and 52. 
And you see what's going on here. Looking at it not from a human perspective, but from God's point of view, the death of Jesus was all part of God's plan. Yes, it is better that Jesus dies, as Caiaphas said, but not for the reason that Caiaphas thinks. It is better that Jesus dies as a substitutionary sacrifice. And I use that phrase because substitution runs right through these verses. Now, now look, before I show you that, it's not difficult for us to understand the concept of substitution. We think about it all the time. I, I went to Ellen Road in Leeds on Tuesday night to watch Leeds United beat West Brom, and they did. And they returned to the top of the table. They're not there now, but they were for a day. And I'm telling you that, not in order to wind up all the Sheffield Wednesday fans here, but because during the match, there were substitutions. Jamie Shackleton was taken off, and on came his substitute, Tyler Roberts. Bad move, but we still won the game. Anyway, look, a substitute is someone in the place of another. It's not a difficult concept, is it? And the divine perspective is that Jesus' death was a substitutionary death. Verse 50, one man dying for the people. Verse 51, Jesus dying for the Jewish nation. And verse 52, not only dying for the Jewish nation, but for the scattered children of God. One for another, or one for a whole group of people. That is substitution. And we understand why that substitution is so important when we note the word at the end of Caiaphas' prophecy. Let me read verse 50 again. You do not realise that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. Now that word perish in the Bible refers to being separated from God forever. It's much more than dying. Because the big problem for us is not just that we will, will die one day, that is a problem, but that we will die one day and stand before God as our judge and we will be found guilty. Guilty of rebelling against God. Living our life our own way. Taking all the good things that God has given us in this world and largely pushing God to one side. You see, as bad as death is, there's a fate worse than death and that is facing an eternal future separated from God. Perishing. Perishing in an eternity of hopelessness and helplessness and utter regret. But Jesus came as our substitute, verse 50, one man dying so that we might not perish. Jesus died. More than that, he perished. He experienced separation from God. Remember his words on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was God forsaken as our substitute. He took the punishment so that we might not have to. It was nearly 20 years ago now when um, an American school teacher, Shannon Wright, heard the fire alarm sounding. The fire alarm went off. And thinking it was a routine fire drill, she led her class into the playground, but when they got into the playground, gunshots began to be fired. Children began to be cut down by the bullets. And seeing a lad with a gun aiming at one of her class, a girl called Emma, Shannon Wright stood in the line of fire and she was shot and killed. And the girl Emma said afterwards, I think she saw that bullet coming. She grabbed me by the shoulders and pushed me out of the way. Now that girl Emma, imagine her years later, this was 20 years ago, imagine, imagine 30 or 40 years from now when she's a grandmother. Imagine her showing her grandchildren the pictures on the mantelpiece at home. And one of her grandchildren saying, oh, that's Uncle Dave, isn't it? 
And, and oh, that's mummy. You've told me that before. That's mummy when she was a baby. But, but who's that grandma? I don't recognise that person. And imagine Emma saying, oh, oh, that's Miss Wright, Shannon Wright, my school teacher. I live because she died. If it weren't for her, I wouldn't be here. That was an amazing act of heroism. But it's just a little demonstration of what Jesus did for us. Our substitute, dying in our place. As it were, taking us by the shoulders and pushing us out of the way and saying, I'll take your place. He was God forsaken so that we don't have to perish for eternity. That's the divine perspective on Jesus' death. Jesus gave his life so that we can live forever. Verse 50, it is better that one man die so that we might have life. Jesus is God's man and God's mission. Jesus' death was not a political tragedy carried out by Caiaphas and his cronies. This is God's plan being worked out for the salvation of his people. And not just for the Jews, but you see it there in verse 52, uh, for the scattered children of God, scattered all over the world, down through history, you and me. Even as the Jews plotted to kill Jesus, they were working out God's plan and God's purpose. That is astonishing. But as we begin to draw to a close this evening, we need to see that Jesus' substitutionary death, we need to see it in the context of the raising of Lazarus. See, let me end with this. In the last weeks, we've seen the glory of God. We've seen that God is so glorious that he can raise a dead man. And we thought last week, you and I can't do that. We can't go out into the, uh, into the graveyard and, uh, and you know, call out somebody's name and bring them out of the grave. We can't do that. It, that just shows how glorious God is. But now we see how Jesus can raise sinful dead people and give them eternal life. We see it through substitutionary atonement, through his death on the cross. We see that for Jesus to give eternal life, he must die. And more than that, that he was prepared to die. And more than that, that his death was part of the divine plan. Now, do you begin to see the glory of God? Not just that he is able to raise dead people. That is glorious. That is amazing. But something more glorious, something far more glorious, in order for him to give us eternal life, he has to die. What a God. God so loves the world, you and me, people who've rebelled against him. God so loves the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. What a glorious God. A God who had to die and would die to bring us life. When I became a Christian, I couldn't understand why anyone wouldn't want to put their faith in Jesus to know forgiveness and to be given a guarantee of eternal life. I just didn't understand it. And you know, as I go on, as I understand things like this that we've been thinking about this evening, even more, I cannot understand why anyone would not want to know this God for eternity, because he is so kind and so loving that he'd be prepared to die to give you and me eternal life. Why wouldn't anybody and everybody want that? Let's pray together.
Our great and mighty God, we thank you for your word, giving us, um, well, an insight into all sorts of things, and this evening an insight into kind of why people don't turn to you, because they want to hang on to everything in this life, even though they're going to lose it all one day. We thank you much more for giving an insight into who you are, what you're like, how amazing you are. We thank you for showing us your glory. That you are not only the one who can raise dead people, but you do it through the death of Jesus so that you can raise sinful people to eternal life. And even if we've known this for years, we pray that you would make our hearts sing with thankfulness again this evening. That we may glorify you with our lives. Use my ransom life in any way you choose. Amen.